Welcome to another edition of Contest Prep University's Peak Intel Science Series. I'm Joe Klimzeski with Austin Kiergaard, and we're going to talk about a topic that is so immense. I feel like we could probably set this up as a 12-part series, Austin, but I want to stick to the big elements first, which is keto versus carbs. In terms of total energy balance, the ability to lose body fat, all of the components that go along with that, such as metabolic adaptation, uh, long-term sustainability, how those things are measured and studied. Uh, there, there is so much that I just want to make sure we lay all the pieces on the on the table today and talk through it. And then for future episodes, we can get into different application points, such as you know peak week or things like that. Uh, maybe somebody has a different type of, of dietary need and one may be better than the other, even though it may not be the right answer for everybody. So a lot of nuance to this. But carbs versus keto, the, the first thing I think of in even introducing this topic is there There has been an incredible amount of research and it is gaining ground. There are more people interested, interested in this because there are two big camps, even besides just keto or low carb versus low fat. I think that has been kind of laid out for 40 to 50 years. Uh, I believe the strongest surge of Dr. Atkins-like information was in the 1950s, came back in the 70s, came back in the 90s. I think it's probably stronger than ever now, but but a little bit of, a, of an advancement to that whole argument and controversy is looking at the insulin model, which is now coming under fire to just the energy balance model. Uh, but then there are even some interlinking and nuances we can talk about there with who I'll quote a lot during this discussion, Dr. Kevin Hall, who's the director uh, of nutrition at the NIH uh, in a couple of different labs, actually. So we'll look a lot about his work. But the, the first thing we have to cover is just how body fat even works. If we're going to look at the biochemistry of how this works, that's going to give us a good lead into where there may be some advantages to different ways to divert macronutrients in a, in a in a daily profile. So, for example, in an isocaloric study, if we give one group 90% fat, 10% or maybe you know 8% carbs and 2% protein, a, a real actual ketogenic diet versus kind of a modern ketogenic diet, which is really just kind of a higher protein, low carb diet you know, et cetera, it, it makes sense to look at it in, in an isocaloric uh, comparison. So you, you can really see what happens. And, and that's where this discussion starts. But there are two distinct, if you can go that extreme, you know, that much fat versus that much carbohydrate, there are distinct pathways biochemically that our body uses to digest that energy, use it in terms of its ranking in different intermediate and long-term energy stores we have. Obviously, in a diet concept, we're looking at body fat loss. So how quickly can we get there? Uh, you know, is, is there an advantage one way or the other? Uh, what spares lean body mass the most, preserves metabolism, et cetera? So you having gone through a dietetics program, I, I'm sure this, this controversy, carbs versus keto, comes up. But I, I'm guessing day one, class one, week one, I mean, you're talking about just energy balance and how the body gets into... Uh, glycolysis and lipolysis and so forth. So I'm, I'm going to let you give us 
a, a broad uh, look at just how body fat loss even occurs in the body, how our body uses energy. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, you kind of ended it nicely there with ending with glycolysis. Like we do in the very beginning, we talk about the energy balance, right? We talk about um, how the macronutrients react differently within the body. And keto has gotten so big to your point. It's been so just beefed up and amped up. Um, but when we really want to get down to the nitty gritty, going back to like glycolysis, we have to understand how these things function in the body specifically. Like a lot of people that are going to be listening to this are probably going to be people that exercise and work out, right? They use energy. We've said this time and time again, this is, you know, till we're blue in the face, you know, our body prefers glucose for its main energy source. I mean, it's, it's in literature, it's everywhere. We know this. We know that when we eat carbohydrates, it breaks, breaks down to glucose, which eventually goes through glycolysis, which goes into uh, a breakdown into pyruvite. This happens in the cytosol. And when we get pyruvite, all right, that pyruvite goes from the cytosol and it needs to get broken down more in order to go into the mitochondria, in order to go into what's called our TCA, or some people know it as like the Krebs cycle. This is important because these are things that we need for our energy systems to live, even to exercise. Because when we get that pyruvite into the TCA cycle, it is now going to start moving and doing things to produce ATP, um, things like NADH and FADH2, which we need for like the electron transport chain. And that's important because that electron transport chain produces a lot of ATP, which is known as like our energy currency, right? And if we don't get enough glucose and we don't get enough pyruvite, it has a hard time getting into that mitochondria to get what's called like the oxal acetate. I just say OAA because I have a hard time saying that word. I'm not even going to lie to people. So I'm just going to call it OAA because I just bomb saying it all the time. When we don't get enough uh, breakdown from pyruvite because pyruvite can go into what's called like a CoA. We don't get enough CoA going into the TCA cycle. That OAA has a hard time working and we need that OAA to really start the process of the TCA cycle. So what happens when we don't get enough of that pyruvite to CoA to into the Krebs cycle and all of that, we start to get that not working and we start producing things called ketones because we can also get some CoA from from fat, right? And we know once we start not getting enough, it's got to be made somewhere else because we have to make energy. So to say all of that, if we don't get enough pyruvite, we don't get enough CoA, we don't get the OAA to work very well, the Krebs cycle is not going to, you know, do its job. So then we're going to start producing ketone bodies. And research has shown that we can use ketone bodies for energy. So that's just some of the background. Joe, I think the thing that we're going to try to accomplish today is you know, what's the difference and what's, what's the best, what's the most optimal? What do we really know? Like, so with that background in mind, it is the question of, okay, so if we know that we can use ketones for energy, why doesn't that just work for us? Why can't we just do that? You know, but we do have a lot of research and why we need to implement carbohydrates. You had mentioned the, um, kind of that, that Atkins, that modified Atkins type of diet, where maybe instead of just doing 90% fat, we're doing just a little bit more lower carb and a little bit more protein. So I'm going to throw it back to you can we, so we can kind of start that conversation unless you've had something to add to that. No, it, it always makes me uh, go back to my first graduate level physiology class. I, I distinctly remember sitting the IU Med Center campus, Indianapolis, and this professor who had a foreign accent, you know, was talking about this topic. And he, he used this phrase, 
that fat burns in the flames of carbohydrates. And it was discussing exactly what you're talking about. You know, you get into that whole, you know, TCA mechanism, Krebs cycle. And the reason uh, ketosis is less efficient is because glucose being the smallest form of energy that our cells can use uh, is preferential. Like it just, that that's what makes the whole process. And we're going to get into, I'll kind of tip my hats, give away s- some of the things we're going to talk about later. You know, it, it's why when you compare carbs in your diet, moderate to higher carbs and lower fat versus a high fat, low carb diet, it just works better. You lose body fat faster. Your metabolism stays higher. You preserve more lean body mass because it is more efficient. Now, ketogenic dieting using fat as energy is an adaptive response. Evolutionarily, we we you know develop the ability to use a dominantly fat diet for you know coastal tribal times and and of course you know we've done many studies not not we but you know research has been on you know alaskan type populations and in glacial tribes back in in history uh but does that mean that it's better you know just because our bodies can do it and so that's what a lot of this newer research has has shown uh so what i what i also want to just make sure we're being fair minded about is when you do consistently stay on a ketogenic diet, you do become more fat adapted. And the 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 best study I have seen goes all the way up to about a 40% improvement. So if you if you eat zero carbohydrates, you stay in legitimate ketosis for three months, you can start the path toward becoming about 40% more fat adapted. So you're you're at least catching up to a person who's eating more carbohydrates. Again, doesn't mean it's the best thing, but at least it shows that elasticity in our human DNA and our ability to do that. So uh, by the end of this conversation, I will show you some of the most current research that Kevin Hall has done at the NIH to show that the energy balance truly is our best measure because equated for every single variable being identical it does come down to a low fat and a low carb diet being pretty similar. Low fat, higher carb diets still get the win. They still edge out uh, keto, but it's not that much of a margin. And so if somebody just says, man, I just love keto. I, I don't like eating carbs. You're going to be okay. But if if you're looking for the, the best, most sustainable way then I think you have to ask yourself, are you suffering through keto because you truly love it or because you've just been convinced that's what you should do and eating carbs will be inferior and eating carbs is a breach of that and you're just trying to force your way in because I think that's where most people land. But one of the things I do want to make sure that we discuss too is we're we're chatting about this because there, there are huge proponents of the insulin model still being viable. I mean, this goes way back to the 80s, 90s and a lot of those people who cut their teeth on that are now in their 50s and 60s and writing books, and they're just so hunkered down on this model, they won't let it go, and they make pretty convincing arguments because they can show studies where keto wins. But guess what? Those are self-reported in the wild studies. They're not metabolic ward inpatient studies because anytime that is the case, even though they tend to be shorter, shorter spans... Um, you know, carbs win every time, but, but just, I'm curious in your preparation for this, as well as just, you know, being a dietitian, 
are are there landmark studies? Are there concepts that you say this this is bedrock foundational? Like this 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 is just where we hang our hat on on carbs versus fat. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought up the distinction of like you'll be okay if you decide to go keto if you want to do keto, but you have to ask yourself like, is that something that you truly enjoy or is it just something you're chasing? And I bring that up because you know with doing my preparation for this and stuff, it's it's looking at certain things. There is nothing that I saw that's like, I'm going to hang my hat on this. Carbs do edge out a lot. But if we're talking in terms of, you know, can people lose weight on a ketogenic diet or more of a higher carb diet? You know, th- there is no distinction of as long as both parties have been in a calorie deficit, you know, they both have lost weight. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard for me to just sit there and be like, well, keto is terrible. You need to do more higher carbs. I think that research has shown that carbs are more beneficial for other reasons, not looking at specifically just weight loss. And I think that's important to bring up because it's not exactly what we're talking about today. Weight loss is a part of bodybuilding and a part of physique transformation and physique sport. But there's other factors that you kind of had dabbled talking about already. We got to look at things like strength. We got to look at things like muscle fullness. You know, we got to look at a lot of other things that just make sense come like show day. So I can understand from a weight loss perspective, if somebody wants to go to a ketogenic diet, but then we do have to look at other things too, like recovery, strength, you know, equating strength. Like if you're having a higher carb versus a higher fat, how is the strength uh, going up in these athletes or how is their recovery? So you know, it's hard for me to say that I'm going to hang my hat on just the one thing other than, and you had already mentioned it and I already had said this, but just to reiterate it, like carbs seem to edge out a little bit more from what I have seen. So I just think it was uh, important to note that, you know, if we're talking about weight loss yet, yeah, but you, at the end of the day, you have to be in a calorie deficit. And then you also have to ask yourself, does this make sense? Does this make sense that it's something you can sustain for the rest of your life? That's a big, another topic for another day. But, and then does it make sense from just, is it, is it something that you're chasing or do you truly enjoy eating that amount of fat? There's also things too, and some others of concerns of having consumed too much high fat, but we'll dive into that. So that's kind of my response to that question. I'll, th- I'll throw it back to you, Joe, so we can kind of stay on point here. Yeah, I, I was just getting ready to look up some things because um, I want to, like I said, be fair about you know who who we're discussing and, and whose work we're citing. Uh, because there there are some people that there are journalists and, and the reason I even say this is I'm sure we're going to get some comments or people arguing with us. I, I always do when I do, you know, podcasts like this. Yep. Uh, so I think it's Gary Taubes is his name, who's a journalist and he's written a lot of, you know, low, low carb, high fat kind of books. It, it, he just he's not a scientist. He doesn't know. Uh, but there are some researchers who, again, are just really, really staunchly entrenched in in low carb dieting. And they will they will cite some research that is just old and in invalidated in, in some of these metabolic ward studies. And I wanna I wanna go back to Kevin Hall for just a second before I, I skim through some other studies. So Kevin Hall, again, director of nutrition for the NIH. Uh I call him director of nutrition. He's he's actually in charge of a couple different labs looking at type two diabetes and kidney function and some other things. Uh but he is he is one of the most cited best nutrition researchers in the world right now because first when you work for an organization for 20 years like the NIH you have a pretty big lab and a big budget you can do these kinds of metabolic ward studies which other people can't um 
He also has never done a study just looking at it from the perspective of weight loss. It's always due to uh, you know health concerns. You know what's best for the human body, what's physiologically happening, and what's most appropriate. He's incredibly good at controlling for individual variables. For example, I'm gonna I'm gonna go over a study of his where he wanted to look at processed foods versus ultra processed foods versus whole foods. And he said, we have to make sure we equate for every variable. So even in somebody doing a whole food diet versus an ultra processed food, we made sure the people in the whole food group had the exact same amount of fiber, the exact same amount of sodium, the exact same amount of vitamins and minerals, because we wanted to see if it was just this food compared to that food, not all of the other inert ingredients in it. We wanted those to be equated for. And the reason he does this, and the reason why I'm really high on him as, as one of our most prolific and best researchers in, in nutrition. Uh, he comes from a physics background. He, he was in physics and mathematics before he turned his attention to physiology. Even in his PhD program, he did it through the physics department in a project physiologically. So his mindset is the models in the study, the questions the study is even pursuing the data, the statistics, they all have to be the single best in the world. We're not just going to haphazardly create the study, which then can include a lot of, of bias and so forth. Uh, so, so again, if, if you're going to look at quality of research, you really have to put him at the top of the list when you're comparing these things, especially because he specializes in so many inpatient studies. But here's an example of what we're talking about. So I'm going to skim through some of these, and we're going to put all of the, the links and so forth in the notes. Probably we'll do some in the graphics as well. But uh, here's here's a particular review uh, that is titled the, the Scientific Evidence of Diets for Weight Loss, Different Macronutrient Compositions, Intermittent Fasting, and Popular Diets. And this is in the Journal of Nutrition. So pretty large uh, journal. The subtitle is, uh, in, in a meta-analysis of 32 controlled studies, it concluded that they concluded that energy expenditure and fat loss were more significant with low-fat diets than compared with, with low-carb low diets. So again, that's looking at the 32 best meta-analyses already out there, you know, comparing those. Uh, there was another one that I believe uh, in, in, a, in a ranking of 59 different named diets. I don't think I could even name 59 diets by name. Um, but low, and they, they rank them in, in terms of long-term sustainable efficacy. Were these people able to keep this weight off? Low-carb diets did not, no low-carb diet made the list of the top 59. That's pretty telling. If if you're if if you're saying it's us versus them, one of these is one, one of these is number two. There has to be a clear winner. And a low carb diet, ketogenic diets don't even make the top fifty nine. You know that again. Maybe they are one and two, but if you're always in second place, you probably want to look toward the one that's in first place. If you if you're looking at this from a you know a, a real effective standpoint. Um, let, let me skip down here to another one. Austin here, just uh, um, low fat diets. Here, here's one. And this was from Kevin Hall. Uh, high fat diets caused cognitive impairment. You know, there was a study that showed that, that because again, the ketosis crossing the blood brain barrier. Yes, we can do it evolutionarily, but is it the best for our bodies? 
uh, carbs increase mental acuity. You talked about things like strength and performance. Uh, Kevin Hall again said he, he was kind of surprised when he started just looking at this as a topic. He's, this is a direct quote, in contrast to previous claims about a metabolic advantage, and we, we can turn our conversation here, uh, Austin, a metabolic advantage of carbohydrate restriction for enhancing body fat loss, our data and model simulation support the exact opposite conclusion that, you know, the clear advantage always goes to having uh, carbs. Uh, University of Toronto, as which is a, a great university, as well as Harvard, uh, showed that ketogenic diets were the least sustainable form of dieting the least sustainable. They caused the most uh, binge eating disorders. I mean, it gets pretty tough to say, yeah, sure, keto's okay, uh, because there's a lot of evidence that it's really not that okay. And, and I'm going to be like you, Austin, where, you know, hey, it can work metabolically from an energy perspective, but with ad libitum eating, you get a year down the road, two years down the road, as a lifestyle 20 years down the road, how many people truly do that? I, I don't know a single person. Do, do you, Austin? No, I don't. So, I, I mean, I've been coaching people for, you know, 16, 17 years. I know people who have maybe lost 20, 30, 40 pounds initially going to keto, but it wasn't just because keto was what did it. It was because they found something that allowed them to stick in a calorie deficit for an extended period of time. And then if you followed up with them or ran into them a, a year later, they're back to just eating, you know, your typical kind of Western diet, if you will, just they're eating more carbs. Now they're eating protein. Like, so I bring that, it just wasn't sustainable. And that's something that is a big concern. It's something that has to be talked about. I mean, you just talked about 59, 59 different diets and the low carb wasn't even in the conversation. Like, that's just amazing to me. Like, I, I mean, some of the research that I was doing, it was kind of, I guess you could say alluding to that, but they didn't talk about 59 different diets. So to me, that's just astounding. Um, but it makes sense because like you talked about it creating like the biggest binge eating, you know, disorder. Like, yeah, when, when we are restricting macronutrients and only focusing primarily on one, you know, it's going to be hard to sustain that. Your body is going to really at some point want some carbohydrates. I mean, even in the beginning phases, trying to get your body to adapt to just focusing solely on, on fat utilization. Um, you know, even from brain function, we know that our brain prefers glucose for function. Now we're trying to make it dependent on more fat. So that's just a tough transition. And then again, to try to sustain that just has always seemed unrealistic. And I've just never seen anybody stick to it. I know that like you had said earlier, like it could work and you could grind through good workouts and you could do this and get adapted. But does that make that the most optimal for what we're talking about today? And to me, from what I've seen, no. Well, there one of the things I'm going to conclude with, because Hall right now is trying to take a, a pretty midline approach in showing the commonalities. In other words, if we look at this as just a dichotomy of carbs versus fat, we, we kind of get stuck in that battle and we don't look at the things that can really bring the whole population forward and make dieting easier for more people. So there are some unique commonalities that they both share, ironically. But, you know, just just to continue on for a minute or two before we get into some of the, the real research, 
Um, you know, studies have showed even that a, a long-term keto diet uh, slows and stunts growth in children, increases bone, bone fractures, increases kidney stones, increases diarrhea, constipation, GI dysfunction, fatigue, weakness, headaches, um, you know, just, just on and on and on. And the, the thing that I wanted to also make sure we talk about is even in the research where for a medical nutrition therapy need, people turn toward ketogenic dieting, which uh, Dom Diagostino has very much made famous and popular to talk about the fact that for stage four cancer, for epilepsy, for seizures, things like that, uh, there's a real application for ketogenic dieting. And he, he really played that card heavily for decades and rightly so. I mean, you know, if I, if my child had epilepsy or something like that, seizure disorders that if in, and a physician said, this is important, that's what we would do. But they've also found now with better, more specific research that it's not the carbs. They always thought, well, it's a mechanism. It's it's the glucose. It's that it, it's a tolerance level. So what they found now is even in his research with, with Navy SEALs, you can get to a point where you're as fat adapted as you can be. And then everybody's genetics are a little bit different, mostly due to just metabolic capacity. But then it's no longer an, an anathema to say you can't eat carbs or you lose all these benefits. It's you can eat a certain amount of carbs. And you as one person can probably eat this much. Somebody else can eat this much. And then there's even a type difference. And so they're extending their research now to say, well, it's not really ketosis that does this. It's not really carbs that are the enemy. We just have to find the right level for that person. And that's the trigger point. Um, so, so let's now talk about, you know, j just metabolism itself. Um, I, I thought it would be obvious knowing just what you and I know about things like the Krebs cycle, that carbohydrates will of course keep your metabolism higher, but a lot of the ketogenic crowd has come along and said, no, 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 no. It's the, it's the high fat diet that keeps your metabolism stronger because a high fat diet increases uh, cholesterol derived hormones like testosterone. So to the research I can find Austin, first of all, when fat gets above about 40% of your calories and keto means 80 to 90%, your testosterone actually goes down. Um, and studies just looking at metabolism and metabolic capacity show that in a keto or low carb diet, there's an initial drop for both just because calories being equated for and they're being isochloric diets. And then there's a stage of time after a couple of weeks where this is actually true for the ketogenic crowd, that metabolism bumps up a point or two, and then it comes down and it goes under. Then all of a sudden the low fat diets outperform metabolically. And researchers have looked at that little bump and they say, well, what is that? And it's actually just gluconeogenesis. It's it's you losing muscle. It's your body actually seeing a blood level increase in nitrogen because you're starting to catabolically harvest more amino acids out of muscle tissue and out of body tissue. And so it, ironically, what the ketogenic crowd is saying, look, there's a benefit, there's value. We, we have a higher metabolism. Well, you do for about a two to four week period of time out of a, a year of dieting. And it's because you're actually losing muscle tissue. Um, which long-term leads to the opposite, which would be a slower metabolism because you're, you're losing metabolically active tissue. 
So any, any thoughts in terms of metabolism and any advantage either way, other than what I brought forward here? No, some of the research I saw, they were looking kind of at the, the lipid panels as well. You know, they see, you know, with like the higher fat group that while testosterone maybe went up and stuff like that for a time, to your point, it kind of leveled off after a bit, as well as obviously because of that, you, they saw, you know, just higher lipid panel results like LDL went up. So that is something to kind of consider. I think going back though, to like you were talking about, like with gluconeogenesis, um, you know, I think people from a practicality standpoint have to also look at, like, we've talked about this time and again, where we know that when we're exercising, right, we store carbohydrates in our liver, but also in our muscle. So think about that. We're not getting enough carbs to store glycogen into our muscle cells. We're trying to work out. We're trying to become dependent on things. So this makes sense, right? That we need to be still using things like gluconeogenesis to try to produce energy for certain things that expend a lot of energy. So we have to kind of look at that as well. Um, but with everything that you've kind of already discussed was very similar to what I have already seen in the research that I looked up. So, well, so one of the things I wanted to talk about too, is getting back into your, your mention of things like energy strength for training and so forth. Uh, another place and I know you and I both started out, you know, 30 minutes ago or so saying that we're going to be very, you know, fair, even handed, and we're not anti-keto and so forth. But the further you look at the actual research, it, it does animate me a little bit more to be on the camp of like, why would you even do that? If you have to, for some reason, I, I get that. Uh, some people digestively, some people, you know, for example, if you have uh, SIBO or other kind of issues, you know, some kind of a, a fungal thing. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think as we get down to the fact that when somebody is talking about a higher carbohydrate, lower fat diet, even in the realm of flexible dieting, it, that often gets bastardized in this conversation to say, well, that gives me the allowance to eat, uh, you know, gummy bears and Twinkies and all these things because it's flexible dieting and a carb is a carb. Well, more research that really gets into those ultra processed foods show that even when you do equate for those things, people do tend to add body fat back on rapidly when they're eating those kinds of foods uh, because they're just so highly palatable. Your your body, your your hypothalamus just is inflates those cravings, those those hunger cues for the, the fat, the sugar, uh, the sodium. You know, there's a lot more in those things than just what we would say, well, it's carbs versus fat. Uh, one of the, one of the points before we, we turn into just re really the, the art and the science of training, because most of us, as you said, who are watching this podcast, don't just try to lose body fat. We're interested in some kind of a, a muscle or performance sport. Um, so in, in one of these studies that was an inpatient study and, you know, it was keto versus carbs, they wanted everything to be totally equated for perfect. And then they gave them an extra allowance, you know, here's here, it's now ad libitum. Once we're done with this dieting phase, here's an unlimited amount of food. And we're just going to see who, who has the best return to maintenance or some form of normalcy when the, the rules are, are no longer there. You know, you can eat what you want. And the ketogenic people, the people in that study group, ate 700 calories a day more than those who dieted on a low fat diet. 
Absolutely. That makes sense. Reintroducing carbohydrates back into the diet. Yeah. It's that, that that's why it's the number one cause of binge eating disorder. I mean, it, it literally forces you to do that. So if you don't have some kind of internal value that's causing you to eat keto, if you're using it as just a diet mechanism, I'm going to do keto because I have bought into the fact that I'm going to be able to lose weight. And I love carbs, but I'm not going to eat carbs because you're quote, not supposed to, and I'm going to do this diet. You are the person who's going to fail. You are the person who's going to have probably some struggles with binge eating at the outset of the, the diet. You're going to exit the diet with less lean body mass in, in a lower metabolism, more metabolic adaptation. And even if, as you and I are agreeing, Austin, even if you were close to being able to lose almost the same amount of body fat and a lot of things were the same, just because we are talking about the energy balance model, then it's still going to be ultimately a failure for you. And, and that's really what I'm trying to guard against in providing this kind of information. Absolutely. I mean, I understand if people prefer fats, I understand fats and the importance of in a clinical setting, you had mentioned SIBO. There's just people with a lot of GI issues, so they might need to switch to some higher fats, but that doesn't mean we have to cut out carbohydrates specifically. Um, you know, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts as well, you know, even if you had a moderate amount of carbohydrates and maybe just a slightly bit higher of fat intake alone, because maybe you just prefer some more fats, um, and you're still doing that in a calorie deficit, like that alone allows you to still lose weight, still include carbohydrates. So having that less chance of binge eating kind of, we've been talking about recently, and you'll have a little bit less bulk in the stomach if you do have some just natural GI issues. Um, so I bring that up because it's like, I think we live in a world of extremes, right? Like there's people that live and die by flexible dieting. There's people that live and die by ketogenic diet. There's people that live and die that energy balance doesn't exist. Um, so I think it's important to understand here that, you know, if you are somebody that prefers to have higher fat, that's okay. But one thing that we're going to continue to be talking about today is that, you know, we're just not seeing these wowed claims really hold up anymore when it comes to high, high fat diets versus higher carbohydrate, lower fat diets. So I think that's just something important for our listeners to know. You know, one, one of the things that really trips, trips people up, and this is why people like uh, Dr. Is it Lustig or Ludwig? I think it's Ludwig. Um, I think it's Ludwig. He's, yeah, he's he's a researcher who's really big on, you know, carbs are the enemy, sugar is toxic, and everybody who eats any sugar is going to die tomorrow. And so he's a very high ketogenic proponent kind of guy. And I've even heard him on a on a personal uh, interview, like I, I was involved in a in a video chat with him. And uh, in my brain, I'm thinking, wow, this is just like 1990s stuff. Like, he where have you been for the last 30 years where all of this other nuanced research has taken place? Because he's just regurgitating and repeating those things we heard about from the zone diet on backwards. And I'm like, that is that era is over. Uh, but the to to their credit, what they are misinterpreting, and this is this is the danger of not understanding the research completely. Uh, it, it, I mean, the insulin itself is controlled very, very significantly by carbohydrates. It's not just calories. When you look at what insulin does in the body, and this was, you know, maybe our first real look into this kind of research in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and that's why it 
it led to the Atkins type revolution. Um, you, you, you do see, even if you are looking at just energy balance and calories equated for calories, a lower carb diet, higher fat, you will have less insulin circulating that will increase sensitivity at those receptor sites. And so people who are looking at metabolic syndrome and type two diabetes, when they say, aha, look, look here, see it's insulin. Insulin is bad. Insulin causes energy storage, blah, blah, blah. But that was only looking at one mechanism the entire time. And to be fair, maybe that was all that was really known in the 50s, 60s and 70s. But now that we can do this kind of longitudinal research, uh, this type of epidemiological research, this type of direct mechanistic research in inpatient wards, it just doesn't hold up. Even with diabetics, even with insulin being dominantly controlled by carbohydrate intake, diabetics even do better on lower fat diets. Even though insulin is part of that equation and controlled mostly by carb intake, when you look at A1C, it's still total energy balance because of things like glucose disposal, which happens in expenditure, the other side of that equation. And that's what I want to spend a little bit more time, uh, but specifically because you're a registered dietitian, Austin, uh, tell me what the Tell me what the protocols are right now if you're working with somebody with type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, that sort of thing. I'm so glad you brought this up. Like I was just just sitting over here giggity uh, excited because uh, I'm going to explain something really fast that's relevant to the question. I'll get to the question. So one thing that we also know like in the clinical setting, it, it's kind of phasing out, but it still has a lot of importance in the clinical setting. So like you may have you ever heard of glucose tabs you may have heard of these right mm -hmm. so a lot of glucose tabs typically are kind of close to like 15 grams of carbohydrates that's because there was exchange based dieting which was very common to prescribe to diabetics so we know that one exchange is 15 grams of carbohydrates so if you were to eat that 15 gram of carbs is about the roughly amount that we see a kind of a little bit of that that rise in blood sugar we also see a very small amount of rise in blood sugar if we eat protein and a very small amount if we eat fat. That will come into play here in a little bit. So my point with the carbs is, is you know, they're, for a long time, diabetics, depending on their weight and their, their health history and things like that, they would be on certain types of exchanges. They might have like a three to four exchange program that they'd have to be on. So every meal is 30 to 45 carbs or it might be, you know, 45 to 60 grams of carbs or whatever. And, and we're still eating carbs in a clinical setting to control their blood sugar. Um, so if I'm seeing a patient for, cause their A1C is really high, you know, I go through kind of what they're eating and it's a lot of things that we've kind of already talked about. It's the very high sugar, high processed things that they just eat so much of it. They also don't exercise, which can help control blood sugar, which we'll talk about later. But we still have them eat carbohydrates. And that's kind of where I'm going to answering your question. You know, you had said something earlier where it's like, well, all carbs are the same because energy is the same. That's not the case. If I take someone that's diabetic and say, I would like you to eat more fibrous foods and more complex carbohydrates, a little bit less of the added sugar foods, the sugar more so from your fruits, your vegetables and grains. And then we're going to try to portion those out meaning we're still going to eat carbs. I also still need you to eat some protein. I also need you to go and exercise a little bit because your body will use, which we've just been talking about this whole time, blood sugar for energy. 
which allows you to use that blood sugar, which also can help with your cells becoming, and we're with everything else, your cells becoming a little bit more sensitive. Um, we also still have fat. We don't really say we're going to go give you 90% fat to control your blood sugar because you still need the carbohydrates. We still have to manage that blood sugar and we can do this, but we have to control. So this is answering your question. We have to control the portion size of the carbohydrates, right? We have to control what type of carbohydrates are going into the body, into the body that we're still eating the other macronutrients that we need proteins and fats along with the carbs. And we still need to do exercise. I'm not saying for a clinical person, they have to go pump weights. I tell them doing some resistance training would be great, but if they gave me a walk every day, multiple walks, even that can help. So I say all of that because those are different situations that we use and not one of those said that we switched to a high, high fat diet. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was, uh, as you were talking, I was thinking of even the benefit that a reduced carb diet Yes. in all, when again, you're looking at, could it be a balanced diet? Could it be, you know, low fat, high carb, uh, only the ketogenic low carb diets reduce actual energy expenditure. And that even reduces non-exercise activity thermogenesis because, you know, think of any time that you've been on a low carb diet and just how lethargic you feel. And this, again, is another study interest of, of Kevin Hall's looking epidemiologically at, you know, what, what are people really doing in the wild when they're in these different states of dieting? And, you know, I, I think nothing is more difficult as somebody who trains really hard. We're going to talk to a lot of bodybuilders, physique sport competitors, performance athletes. And it's very few and far between that you find somebody who says, I am a high level athlete and I don't eat carbs. And part of that is to your point, even down to the biochemistry of how you would treat somebody with diabetes or metabolic syndrome, uh, it it still comes down to the fact that your body needs needs some carbohydrate. And this is where people get confused throwing the baby out the bathwater. Are controlling carbs, is that an important part of any diet? Yes, because that's part of your energy balance. And I remember, Austin, going back 30 years when I was sitting in front of my first clients trying to explain nutrition. And I knew I was going to be somebody who didn't just say, oh, try this diet. Here's my favorite diet. It was me always wanting to teach them enough about biochemistry and physiology so that they could have the flexibility. You know, even though I didn't even call it flexible dieting 30 years ago, uh, I was teaching people to track macronutrients and to use some kind of quantitative foundation for their nutrition. And, and I would explain this process that I called metabolic positioning. And I totally made that up because I don't even think the metabolic switch as a categorical descriptor was even in our industry yet in research. It just, it just, at least I wasn't aware of it. So I would, I would show people this whole process of getting into lipolysis and gluconeogenesis and all this stuff by showing them these graphics of the liver glycogen, the muscle glycogen, and here's, here's where your blood sugar is in a weight stable context. And as soon as we get into a controlled calorie deficit, let's assume that's the age old gold standard of 500 calories a day. Here's what's going to happen. Because I'm giving you a a fairly balanced approach, we're going to bring fat down to this level and quantitatively 
as well as qualitatively control for your health value goals and interests. So, you know, let's, let's get rid of as much saturated fat as we can and so forth, but here's enough fat to make sure it's easy to do with your, your diet. Uh, we need some carbs. So here are the carbs. We're going to look at the, the quality of those, some lower glycemic, higher fiber type foods. You still have the flexibility to have some other indulgences, but let's do that. Here's what we know your body needs for protein and so forth. So here's what's going to happen. And I would show that in the first couple of days, your, your body starts looking toward liver glycogen to supplement that calorie deficit. Then, because it's not as systemically available, uh, just because you're moving around, you're working out, you're, you're going to use muscle glycogen, and you just don't have an abundance and excess to replace it. So that's more glycogen loss. So gradually over three or four days, maybe two, if you're really aggressive with your training, you're, you're going to reach this point where hunger cues increase a little bit. Maybe you feel a little hypoglycemic because overall stored carbohydrate in levels in your body are a little bit lower. Your body hasn't made that transition yet to more effectively turning fat into glucose, taking a trip back through the liver to, you know, gluconeogenesis to be converted. And I'm going through this whole thing and I mean, this goes back 30 years and I would explain, okay, then after a day or so, your body's going to catch up and you're going to start feeling this way. And I'm, I'm basically describing fat adaptation, but on a moderate level, it's not keto, but I'm going to get there in a second. And I would show them this whole thing. And then after, you know, three or four days, you're going to start feeling better by the second week, your hunger is going to be down. Your energy is going to be up. You're going to feel better. And, and I would show them like a gas gauge, a fuel tank. Here's your body with full glycogen levels. Because that is 600, 900 grams of carbs, you know, it's going to take three, four days to get there. But we want to be about at that three quarter, two thirds of a tank, because then you still have enough glycogen to fuel energy deficits between meals. So you're going to, you're going to get closer to empty, but you know, you're not there. The next meal will refill that a little bit. But that means day after day after day, meal cycle after meal cycle, you're tapping into more body fat stores. And that's how we get there. And the immediate first question they would ask Austin was, okay, that's great. That makes sense. Why not just get rid of carbs altogether? Why not just go all the way to empty from day one? And I would show them that that's where now you lose that buffer against muscle loss and metabolic adaptation protection and so forth. And just instinctively, people understood it, but then they would always experience it in real life. The first time they, you know, had too, too much food at a birthday party or something, and uh, they felt kind of sluggish in that regain of blood sugar. And now they have to go all the way back to the beginning because now maybe you've refilled your entire glycogen stores. And so now you're going to take three or four days to get back there. But again, energy balance, calories, a calorie mostly, you know, to the nuances we've been talking about. So you just have to kind of pay your dues. You have to get back there to the point you're losing body fat. But if you just throw all the carbs out, all the things we talked about, including the research that shows your metabolism gets suppressed, you start losing lean body mass, which leads to bone mass loss and so forth. But all of that goes back to just the original concept of, again, what I call metabolic positioning, which is truly the metabolic switch. So again, just back to your dietetics background and, and maybe what you explain to your own clinical patients, as well as coaching clients, 
how much of that gets interwoven into your conversations? It depends on, on, you know, kind of the level of interest with my clinical patients, you know, some of them, they may have already had some, let's say uh, just a diabetic. Cause we're talking, we've been talking about carbs, you know, some of them may have already had some diabetic education prior. So if, if they've had no education, then I'll go through a little bit more of the kind of the mechanisms of everything. So they understand why they have been recently diagnosed with diabetes and how we can move forward. In general, I like to kind of talk about both, you know, athletes and both clinical, the control of blood sugar. Like you were saying how you kind of explain things to people. Like I like to talk about like a little chart, like a graph chart. I'm like, you know, when we wake up, our blood sugar is here. If we eat something or do something quick, the blood sugar goes up here and we have these big high peaks and spikes I like to explain to people, I like to see things like a nice normal wave where things gradually go up and they gradually come back down. And that even goes for weight loss, right? Because to your point, then we have time for that metabolic adaptation to kick in, where if we were to just say, well, I'm diabetic or I want to lose weight, I'll just cut out all carbs. Like we just know that after maybe day two or day three, things are not going to go well for you. I mean, you can do that for a couple of days until those glycogen stores become very low before we start really kicking into gluconeogenesis and things start kind of, we start losing muscle. So I try to explain like the both extremes of where people are at and why we want to try to live in a nice medium area of still having carbs, but maybe switching the carb sources that we're eating, still having protein and still having fat and making sure that we keep these things in a nice balance up and down wave of blood sugar of if we are going to talk about weight loss, that we're slowly pulling calories back, allowing our body to have time to adjust to these changes versus just doing a rapid change. Now, there are very extreme cases, which is not the topic of what we're talking about today, where people are just clinically you know, obese that are going to have to go through some more extreme phases, but that's not kind of what we're talking about here. And that is a whole different setting. What we're talking about is looking at weight loss with higher carbs or higher fats. And because a lot of bodybuilders and barbell athletes and things like that are going to be listening to us, I want to make sure that we bring it up for those listeners too, that, you know, the, the theme here is we still need carbs. We really do still need carbohydrates, especially if we're going to be prepping for a show, we're losing weight, especially if we're just trying to do off season stuff and we're trying to increase strength. Like we still need these things. So, um, before I throw it back to you, Joe, I just kind of wanted to throw that little side note in there. Well, I, I want to end with the things that we can all agree on. And, and that's why I love the fact that Kevin Hall has done this in some of his most recent interviews as well. Um, it, it, the thing that I think a lot of people are searching for when they treat this as a binary and they want just the answer, should I eat carbs or not? Uh, they they want some kind of, of advantage in sustainability. You know, if I'm going to diet for 16, 20, 24 weeks or a year, or if I'm going to lose 150 pounds of body fat and keep it off, you know, what is the answer? Um, it all comes down to metabolism for a lot of people because they get chided into those conversations about metabolic quote damage and, you know, adaptation and suppression. And the fact is that exists for anybody who loses weight. That's a function of just body fat level in your body. You get reductions of leptin, even things like PYY, more of a downstream, you know, gut neurotransmitter. And, and these, these are things that remain changed to your detriment 
And, and I say that because you have to consider that being lean and healthy is the baseline and sometimes being overweight, you know, there are some benefits to things like satiety. When you're overweight because of leptin and the, the links to your hypothalamus with hunger cueing and so forth, you should actually not feel as hungry. When your body fat is lower, which necessitates you eating a more um, you know, appropriate level of, of calorie intake, then you're going to feel appropriate surges of hunger. I've talked to clients who are sitting in front of me, Austin, and they want to lose 60 pounds. They want to lose 100 pounds. And, and I've had people tell me, I don't think I've ever been hungry. Like, I don't know what hunger is. I just eat because the food is there. And it's only when they're in a calorie deficit and then trying to maintain a lower level of body fat that they say, oh, okay, now I know what hunger is. It shouldn't drive us toward food. It should be an objective response. Oh, that's how, matter of fact, I'll, I'll give you a study here where uh, researchers use glucometers to, in a biofeedback mechanism, teach both kids and adults to start to equate what their blood sugar really is with how they felt, what level of hunger. In, in this particular study, in just seven weeks, they were able to get both kids and adults 80 to 90% accuracy of saying, okay, wow, I'm hungry. Oh, wait a second. I just objectively ate two hours ago. So my blood sugar levels, my blood lipid levels, my blood amino acid levels are actually still rising. What is that sensation I feel? Oh, that's not hunger. That's barometric emptiness. That's a signal that phase three epigastric contractions have just happened and have forced you know, all of this food through the, uh, the, the pyloric sphincter. And so now I'm getting this sensation that I'm empty. That's not hunger. Okay. I'll wait for a while. Hunger goes away. 30 minutes later, I'm feeling a little, little tinge of hunger again, but it's not bad. I think I'm okay. And I'll bet my blood sugar is about 130. And then what they would say, okay, now I'm starting to feel a little weakness. I'll bet my blood sugar is under a hundred and it's an appropriate time to eat. And in Austin, they literally taught these people without actually going through quantitative dieting to just monitor how they felt. And even a year later, these people had lost a substantial amount of weight that had kept it off just because they, they learned that A, hunger is normal and appropriate. There are different levels to it and different reasons you feel it in different ways and whether you're eating carbs or or not, whether you're eating a, a higher fat or a lower fat diet or not, keto versus carbs, these things are going to be normal for everybody. And you have to get used to that in that transition to, to maintenance. And, and, and going back to some of the studies of ultra processed foods, you know, that's that's what is very, very, very different for people. When you're not getting enough whole food, when you're not getting enough of, of the right types of you know, fruits and vegetables and whole grains and so forth, uh, then, then these things are accelerated. Even if you are eating carbs and you're on a lower fat diet, if you're eating all shitty, horrible quality carbs, you could still end up with, with no advantage. I'll give you a perfect example. A client updated me the other day and um, they're like, I, I did great. You know, I, I think I hit everything, but my, my stomach and my whole GI system, I just feel bloated. I feel awful. This uh, 
client didn't have any weight change at all from the last week. Now I understand that there were some holidays and stuff, but this client told me that they still did a good job through the holidays. They were still able to hit their average weekly calories. So um, I was looking through their kind of last three, four days of food diary that they tracked. Um, the average fiber intake was six to 10 grams of fiber a day. And I said, well, I said, you're not close. <laughs> and I'm like, tell me about that. Well, I, I've been in a hurry. I've been busy. I was focusing more on just hitting my macros and calories that I was just trying to get that in. I said, okay, well, I want you to aim for 30 because that's about that sweet spot between the RDA is 25 to 38 grams a day. And I want to make sure you're still getting fluids. And then we'll check back. And I've had clients, you know, send this to me before. And the moment we get them some more fiber, not fiber from protein bars, not fiber from these quick sources, like fiber from fruits, vegetables, things like that. Every time, every single time, as long as they're drinking water with it as well, they feel way better. They feel way less bloated. They end up losing two, three pounds. And it's like, well, yeah, no shit. Pun intended. Like you're moving stuff. So you can have a poop. Like, and and so you can um, get to where your body wants to be. When we, and I've said this earlier, I'm going to keep saying it till I'm blue in the face. When we move one thing, like if we take something out, right? We take out carbs or we take out fat, we're losing things. We have not even scratched the surface on any of this. We haven't talked about the importance of the micronutrients you lose when you completely remove carbohydrates from your diet and only focus on fat. So when we're losing out on some of these micronutrients, we're losing out on some of these things, of course, our body is going to react a way that it wants that because it needs that. Just because you take a multivitamin does not necessarily mean that your needs are going to be covered. It may or may not help depending on the brand and the quality. And if that supplement's been third-party tested, or it just could be a really expensive placebo pill, you know, it's a flip of the coin toss. So all of that, because we need to make sure we're still getting what we need. We need, and research, we've talked about the research, you know, research is showing that we obviously still need all of our macronutrients from a performance base, from a metabolic standpoint, from blood panel standpoint, like from all of these things, we need to still implement carbs. We still need protein and we still need fat, how we distribute them and the types of carbs and things like that, that we're eating, that all plays a difference. We talk about energy balance and you said this earlier, calories are, you know, they're there. We know that calories are calories, but there's certain things within those calories or certain types of things that we need to still implement because they could be the main thing. If we're not getting some of those things in why we're feeling the way that we're feeling and why we're performing the way we're performing. So it's important to know that it's important to know your body's um, physical cues. It's important to know what your dietary intake is. And it's just things that everybody listening to this needs to understand. There are so many extremes to nutrition and there's so many wild claims. We have to look at, what that extreme claim is, extreme claim is, excuse me, we have to look at what real research, real accurate, your meta-analyses, your randomized control trials, those types of things say, not just something some person wrote on a napkin and said, this is a study. You know, we have to really look at what the research is saying too. Yep. And as a final thing that I'll close this out with, uh, because again, looking at what, what are the common things, regardless how you want to diet uh, at a, at a, a, in a longitudinal way of, of looking at post dieting for people who use a ketogenic versus a lower fat diet, 
the people who sustained their progress the longest were the ones who were the most physically active. So we're not going to talk about glucose disposable here, uh, although that's part of any type of, of nutrition. What, what I want to uh, make sure people understand is you and I, me as a retired professional bodybuilder, you as a current, those people listening to us probably engaged in something very physically demanding. When you have that external goal and you find that that's propelling you forward, that's driving you, that's how you're able to sustain yourself through all of these rigors of dieting, you're looking for every tiny advantage. And, and you'll recall that, man, if I just eat this food, I, I do well. I have more energy. It, it kind of holds me over longer. This one kind of triggers more hunger. I need to get enough sleep. I need to drink enough water. I need to make sure I get this amount of protein. All of these little things create kind of a sweet spot of sustainability. And that's an important factor uh, that I think is often missed when, as you said, you're you're just throwing out all carbohydrates because even volumetrically, even if you had a very, very full stomach because you just ate an eight ounce chicken breast and drank a ton of water and had some fibrous carb with it, because blood sugar is still so low, you still feel immense hunger. You know, that hypothalamic cue for you to just be it's just insatiably hungry makes it very difficult to sustain. So I think that's a lot of what's behind some of the binging post-diet and so forth that's also been studied and mentioned. Um, so all of the physiology we've discussed, I won't repeat it, uh, but, you know, hopefully people will go through and look at some of these citations, look at some of these notes. If anybody wants to argue some points, I'm going to tell you right now, show it to me in an inpatient study. Show me where is that that producible, reproducible. Uh, because we we know you can't talk to any single researcher who doesn't say that the biggest problem with nutrition research is wildly inaccurate, underreported food intake. And so that's, that's what, one of yeah, that's I I can't remember the number, but um there was some research out there that showed that the average like American underreports like four to six hundred calories or something, meaning yeah. that like Oh, this is how many calories I eat. No, they're off by like four to six, meaning they're probably eating more than what they actually say that they're eating. So I, I've talked to a handful of different researchers, people literally in labs who said, we we know it's between 30 and 50%. And crazy. so so the and, and that's what's often the issue. Those are the people who are on ketogenic diets. Here's your food. We're gonna even give you this food, but it's 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 an at-home study. So you're gonna just come back and report to us. We'll do some tests. They're the ones who are supplementing with carbs. If you if you're on a high carb, low-fat diet, even isocalorically driven, you just don't have as many cravings, you're not as hungry. And so you're you're much more prone to self-reporting, you know, more accurately. And so that's where you just can't compare an outpatient versus inpatient study. Yeah, it's very difficult. But uh, thanks, Austin, for this one. Uh, you know, I, I know we're early in this particular series of, you know, peak intel, but we're going to keep hammering away at actual, you know, valid science and, and research so that we can provide what we think is more of a, a bedrock of information that people kind of build their habits and practices on. So we'll see you guys next time in Contest Prep University, peak intel. <laughs>